Good morning, good morning. Welcome to the Morning Mix. I am your host, Ellie Shapiro. How are we doing on this beautiful morning? Beautiful morning. As always, lots to talk about. Lots, too much to talk about. That's the problem. It's too much to talk about. Yesterday, you know, we devoted a, a strong, a large segment of the show yesterday to, um, to this idea that Joe Biden signs an executive order and then of course he doesn't himself abide by it. Now I don't really care if he wears a mask, as, as we all know. I don't really care if he wears a mask. But there's one point that I don't feel that I, I, I brought out and it's actually connected in, 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 in a, in a, fa- in, in some manner today. That idea that, that, um, setting a rule and then having people not follow it, the media won't call that lying. They won't call that deception. They won't call that as though that's the that's the biggest you know uh, the, the the president is the biggest liar because he says that the the wall is going to be this or the crowd side is going to be this and lying is when you is when you set a rule for people and you don't follow it. That is a far greater form of of uh, authenticity is when you when you are true to who you are. The president didn't make mask mandates because. He knew that that is not what he himself is going to follow. He isn't going to ask people to do things that he himself isn't going to do because that is inauthentic. Now, the left postures, they don't, they don't care about those. They don't care about that. They can make laws for you. That doesn't bother them. But just understand, just understand when the president says that he isn't making a mask mandate, that's not necessarily because he doesn't want people to take whatever precautions they can in order to bring the economy back. Whatever could actually work, he's willing to accept. But he's not going to make a law that he himself isn't going to always follow. That's that's one of the rules. Okay, I just want to make that point clear. In any case, the uh, we, we said that we were going to devote some time to the initial actions of this administration because you see, and you see so much of what the people do in their first days, their first moments in office, that tells us the character, that tells us exactly, exactly what their intentions are. And so the first, the first executive orders, the first executive orders, those are the most important because now we see exactly who they are. Or how about this? I mentioned, I, was, I, intended, I intended to mention this before, but U.S. ambassador to Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza, with its, which with its signature blue check mark from Twitter. That's what the original U.S. ambassador Twitter handle was. Once they, when they, when they moved, when they, when they switched administrations, it went from U.S. ambassador to Israel to U.S. ambassador to Israel, comma the West Bank and Gaza. Now. They changed it. That is true. They changed it. It went from 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 uh, U.S. Uh, ambassador to Israel, Gaza, West Bank, and Gaza to just ambassador to Israel. But what happened in the middle? What happened in the middle? It was still called the U.S. ambassador to Israel, but the Twitter handle, what the, fe- the, the 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 feature, the detail was was ambassador to Gaza and Israel. What happened? West Bank and Gaza. There's a what they try what they were trying to do in their initial. 24, 36, 48, 72 hours. That tells us more than we ever need to know. So we're going to devote some time to discuss the 1619 project. 
versus the 1776 commission. And as a segue, it's very much connected with the parsha that we are reading these the, last week, this week, parsha's bow and parsha's b'shalach, because because Rabbi Sachs in his covenant and conversation, his weekly Devar Torah that's published now posthumously, as we know, Rabbi Sachs passed away a couple months ago, six weeks ago, two months ago or so, and. Um, and so he asks a question. He often, he will often ask a, an, an audience to perform a thought experiment. Imagine you are a leader of a people that is en- enslaved and oppressed, that has suffered exile for more than two centuries. Now after a series of miracles, is about to go free. You assemble them and rise to address them. They are waiting expectantly for your words. This is a defining moment. They will never forget. What will you speak about? Well, he answers that most people will predictably um, suggest freedom, as Lincoln and Mandela both did. But that's not that's not what Moses did. That's not what Moshe Rabbeinu did. Any of these would have been great speech by a great would have would have been the great speech of a great leader, guided by God. Moses did none of these things. That is what made him a unique leader. If you examine the text. In Parashat Bo, you will see that three times he reverted to the same theme. Children, education, and distant future. It is one of the most, he cites examples from the Pesukim, from the verses. It is one of the most counterintuitive acts in the history of leadership. Moses did not speak about today or tomorrow. He spoke about the distant future and the duty of parents to educate their children. He even hinted, as Jewish tradition understood, that we should encourage our children to ask questions so that the handing on of our Jewish heritage would be not a matter of rote learning, but of active dialogue between parents and children. Those are the parashas that we are reading today, parashas Bari, parashas B'Shalach, the central message is education. When your children will ask, what are we going to say? We never shun questions. We encourage questions. So Jews became the only people in history to predicate their very survival on education. The most sacred duty of parents was to teach their children. Judaism became the religion whose heroes were teachers and whose passion was the study and the life of the mind. As opposed to other cultures and other nations, which he cites, he gives us, he cites examples of, why do they not exist any longer? The Greeks built the, Par- the Parthenon. The Romans built the Colosseum. Jews built schools. Moses' insight was profound. He knew that you cannot change the world by externalities alone, by monumental architecture or armies or empires, or the use of force and power. How many empires have come and gone while the human condition remains trans- untransformed and unredeemed? Okay, and, and I'm not going to read the whole piece because there's just too much to discuss today. You can You can... You can uh, reference it this week, Covenant in Conversation by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. But this message, this message that the success lies in education. The left got this. While the right were sleeping, the left got this. They took, they made a hostile takeover very slowly, but they, it, was a, it was a takeover of the educational system, K through 12, as it's called in America, K through 12 universities. They are all in the possession of the left. 
look at the at the fierce attack that the different Congress people and senators are under now from their alma maters for defending half the country. The, the, the left has a complete dominance on education. They understood that, that the way to succeed was through the indoctrination of the children. The way to succeed is through the indoctrination of the children. So what happened exactly? There is an article written by Brett Stevens in October 2020. Okay? Now, What's noteworthy about this article is because in this article, he, he, Brett Stevens, who is not, who is a conservative, but he is one of the strongest never Trumpers out there. Okay. So Brett Stevens, but Brett Stevens understands the, the, the the threat of the 1619 project. What was a 1619 project? I'm going to read a little bit out of Brett Stevens' report. And of course, what's great about this is because he actually he actually has the original 1619 project, despite the fact that they tried, they tried to extract the parts that were going to be most controversial. He has it. So it's all right. It's all there. If there's one word admirers and critics alike can agree on when it comes to the new 1619 Times, the New York, the new York Times award winning 1619 project, it's ambition. Ambition to reframe America's conversation about race. Ambition to reframe our understanding of history. Ambition to move from the news pages to classrooms. Ambition to move from scholarly debate to national consciousness. In some ways, the, this ambition succeeded. The 1619 Project introduced a date, previously obscure to most Americans, that ought always to have been thought as, of as seminal, and probably now will. It offered fresh reminders of the extent to which black freedom was a victory gained by courageous black Americans and not just a gift obtained from benevolent, from, from benevolent, benevolent whites. It showed in a stunning photo essay the places where human beings were once bought and sold as slaves, neglected scenes of American infamy. It illuminated the extent to which so many of what makes America great, including some of our uniquely American understanding of liberty and equality, is unthinkable. Without the struggle of black Americans, as well as the extent to which so much of, the, of what continues to bedevil us is the result of centuries of racism. In a, and, it, in a, and in a point missed by many of the 1619 Project's critics, it does not reject American values. As Nicole Hannah-Jones, its creator and leading voice, concluded in her essay for the project, I wish now that I could go back to the younger me and tell her that, that, that her people's ancestry started here on these lands and to boldly, proudly draw the stars and those stripes of the American flag. It's an unabashedly patriotic thought. But ambition can be double-edged. Journalists are most often in the business of writing the first draft of history, not trying to have the last word on it. We are best when we try to tell truths with a lowercase t followed, following evidence in directions unseen. Not the capital T truth of a pre-established narrative in which inconvenient facts get discarded. And we are supposed to report and comment on the political and cultural issues of the day, not become the issue itself. As fresh concerns make clear on these pro points, and for all its virtues, buzz, spin-offs, and a Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize, the 1619 Project has failed. 
Those concerns came to light last month when a long-standing critic of the project, Philip W. Magnus, noted in an online magazine. I'm not going to read this whole article. It's long, but I'm going to read different parts of it. An online magazine, Quillette, that references to 1619 as the country's true founding, as opposed to 1620. Let's just note that in there. Or or moment America began had disappeared from the digital display copy without explanation. These were not minor points. The deleted assertions went to the core of the project's most controversial goal, to reframe America's American history by considering what it would mean to regard 1619 as our nation's birth. That doesn't mean that the project seeks to erase the Declaration of Independence from history, but it does mean that it seeks to dethrone the 4th of July by treating American history as a story of black struggle against white supremacy, of which the Declaration is, for all of its high-flown rhetoric, supposed to be merely a part. In a tweet, Hannah Jones responded to Magnus and other critics by insisting that the text of the project remained unchanged, while maintaining that the case for making 1619 the country's true birth year was Always a metaphoric argument. I emailed her to ask her if she could point to any instances before this controversy in which she had acknowledged that her claims about 1619 as our true founding had been merely metaphorical. Her answer was that the idea of treating the 1619 date metaphorically should have been so obvious that it went without saying. She then challenged me to find any instance in which the project stated that using 1776 as our country's birth date is wrong. That it should not be taught to school children and that the only one that should be taught was 1619. Good luck unearthing any of us arguing that, she added. Here is an excerpt from the introductory essay to the project by the New York Times Magazine's editor, Jake Silverstein, as it appeared in print in August 2019. Okay, so, so just for, to correct something I said earlier about 1620, they're not talking about 1620. Is, is 1620 is also a very important date, but they're referring to, okay, they're just referring to 1776 here. 1619 is not a year. This is an excerpt of the original. 1619. It is not a year that most Americans know as notable, as a notable date in our country's history. Those who do are at most a tiny fraction of those who can tell you that 1776 is the year of our nation's birth. What if, however, we were to tell you that in this fact, which is taught in our schools and unanimously celebrated every 4th of July is wrong. And that the country's true birth date, the moment that its defining contradictions first came into the world, was in late August of 1619. 1619 is not a year that most Americans know as a notable date in our country's history. Okay, so... So this, so we're not gonna, we're not gonna, we're not gonna really address what Brett Stevens' issue here was because it's simple, what his issue here was. But this 1619 project, which was introduced into the schools, was, was there to indoctrinate our children, yeah, living in America, the children who are the future, that America's roots are racism and white supremacy. What did the president do? Because the president understands the president understands this this war. The president understands this war. So I'm going to read to you a piece from Victor Davis Hanson. This is a piece from Victor Davis Hanson. Thoughts on the 1776 Commission and its report. Biden's and Biden's administration, the new administration, the first one of the first things that they signed was to cancel the 1776 Commission. 
1776 Commission was there to combat the 1619 Project. The newly formed President advised, President's Advisory 1776 Commission just released its report. The group was chaired by Churchill historian and Hillsdale College President Larry P. Arne. The vice chair was Carol M. Swain, a retired professor of political science. In full disclosure, I was a member of the commission. He is a classicist, Victor David Sensing is a classicist. He's written a, 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 a world famous historian. He's written many books on, from the Peloponnesian War to books on Mesopotamian history and, 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 and world war, different world wars of more, more contemporary world wars. He's a, a historian. The unanimously approved conclusions Focus on the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the historical challenges to these founding documents, and the need for civic renewal. So the president wanted to institute, his goal was to institute the 1776 Commission into the schools. Because if you want to be able to build a future generation, you have to invest in in the children. Whether... Because the report was issued by a Donald Trump appointed commission or because the conclusions questioned the controversial and flawed New York Times sponsored 1619 project, the left almost immediately criticized it. Yet in any other age, than any age other than the divisive present, the report would not be seen as controversial. First, the commission offered a brief survey of the origins of the Declaration of Independence, published in 1776 and the Constitution signed in 1787. It emphasized how unusual for the age were the founders' commitments to political freedom, personal liberty, and the natural equality endowed by our Creator, all the true beginning of the American experiment. The Commission reminded us that the founders were equally worried about autocracy and chaos, so they drafted checks and balances to protect citizens from authoritarianism, known so well from the British Crown, and also from the frenzy of sometimes wild public excess. The the report repeatedly focused on the ideals of the American founding, as well as the centuries-long quest to live up to them. It notes the fragility of such a novel experiment in constitutional republicanism, democratic elections, and self-government, especially during the late 18th century era of war and factionalism. The report does not whitewash the continuance of many injustices after 1776 and 1787, in particular chattel slavery concentrated in the South and voting reserved only for free males. Indeed, the commission explains why and how these wrongs were inconsistent with the letter and spirit of our founding documents. So it was natural that these disconnects should be addressed throughout our history, even fought over and continually resolved, often over the opposition of powerful interests who sought to reinvent the Declaration and Constitution, transforming into something they were not. Two of the most widely referenced Americans in the report are Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr. Both argued a century apart for the moral singularity of the U.S. Constitution. Neither wished to replace the founders' vision Both instead demanded that they be fully realized and enforced. The report details prior ideological and political challenges to the Constitution as we approach America's 250th 250th birthday. Some were abjectly evil, such as the near century-long insistence of the enslavement of African Americans, that the enslavement of African Americans was legal, an immorality 
an amorality that eventually led to more than 600,000 Americans being killed during a civil war to banish slavery. Some ideologies such as fascism and communism were easily identifiable as inimical to our principles. Both occasionally won adherence in times of economic depression and social strife before they were defeated and discredited abroad. Perhaps more controversially, the commission identifies other challenges such as continued racism, progressivism, and contemporary identity politics. The report argues how and why all those who have insisted that race become a basis from which to discriminate against entire groups of people are at odds with the logic of the Declaration. Historically, progressivism assumed that human nature is malleable. With enough money and power, Americans supposedly can be improved so that they will accept more paternalistic government, usually to be, usually to be run by technocrats. Often progressives sought to curb the liberties of the individual under the guise of modernist progress and greater efficiency. The commission was no more sympathetic to the current popularity of identity politics or repertory, repertory racial discrimination. It argues that using race, ethnicity, sexual preference, and gender to define who we are rather than seeing these traits as incidental when compared with our natural and shared humanity, will lead to a dangerous fragmentation of American society. Finally, the report offers the unifying remedy of renewed civic education. Specifically, it advocates more teaching in our schools of the Declaration, the Constitution, and documents surrounding their creation. It most certainly does not suggest that civic education in American history should ignore or contextualize past national shortcomings. Again, the report argues that our lapses should be envisioned as obstacles to fulfilling the aspirations of our founding. With the change of administrations, the commission may be short-lived, given that it was born in the chaos of the divisive present. President Joe Biden already sought to terminate the commission through an executive order. But any fair critic can see that the report's unifying message is that we are a people blessed with a singular government and history, that self-critique and moral improvement are innate to the American founding and spirit, and that America never had to be perfect to be both good and far better than the alternatives. So that is a brief summation of the 1776 Commission, which has been, as we said, which has been, um, the, which which the new administration signed an executive order to 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 halt. Hey, we're gonna play this little clip here. We, I'm not sure if this is if this is Joe Biden talking about this executive order or something else. But listen to this clip. Let's see if you can hear it. Let's see if you can hear this. hard to hear it's a little clip it says i don't know what i'm signing and a voice someone says there sign it anyways if we're gonna i don't know if we can we can what we can do in order to make that louder doesn't seem as though we can do anything to make it louder i can hear it on a on a on your phone if you're playing it on your phone you can hear it on your phone but it's hard to hear it when you're i guess through the uh the device play it once more let's see 
can do this. Okay, but we'll see if it plays there. He's signing. I know what I'm signing, says. Sign it anyways. Okay. Fine. So, so that's, <laughs> that's, 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 uh, the, the new, the new president, of course. It's his, it's, this is his agenda. This is his agenda. It's a radical agenda. So, there's nothing, there's nothing in the 1776 project that deserved to be, to be, to be, you know, to sign, be signed off, to be signed away. But of course, the left wants 1619 to become America's founding, not 1776. Not 1776. It's a very sad thing because we have to realize, we have to realize, and I've, I, I've, I'm vocal about my opposition to what's going on right now because I see children not being in school. School is not a babysitting the reason our children are not in school is not just because we want them to be in a in a, in a baby in, to be babysat. We believe that school is important for itself. Education is important. It's one of the differences between the Jewish people is we stress education, being a learned people. We were able to read and write when other civilizations were not able to read and write. Because we put a focus on it. And unfortunately right now, the left, with their stronghold that they have over education, it's not just in America, it's in Canada, it's in England, it's in, it's in Israel, it's in all sorts of places. They decide what, you know, the left takes on different, different, unfortunately we know that in Israel there are many, many, there are millions of children who don't know Shema Yisrael. Could you imagine growing up in Israel? And not knowing Shema Yisrael, but the secularists have an agenda, and that's gonna that's our segue into the, into the next topic. Because not sure anybody, however, how many of us are following what's going on, but there has been a an eruption, an eruption of of uh, hatred. They don't need an excuse. We know that they don't need an excuse. And I'm not going to defend every single thing on both side, on, on, on either side. That's not what I might, that's not my intent. But, there are a couple of different articles that have come out in the last 24 hours. Yesterday, in B'nai Brak, a shoter fired a warning shot in the air when he was being attacked. I don't know to what extent he was being attacked, but he was being, he felt he was being attacked. So he fired a warning shot in the air. And it, 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 um, it caused a lot of controversy. So, we know that we're coming up to elections and there are different approaches. Different approaches that are being taken right now. We're gonna read a couple of these. For Netanyahu, the ultra-Orthodox have always come first. After a mass wedding party in a Haredi enclave was broken up by the police at the end of last week and its organizers were handed significant fines, the Prime Minister issued a strong statement of support for the police, backing them for taking action against people who flagrantly and selfishly ignore the rules. Chief Rabbi went further. This is a most shameful desecration of all that we hold dear, he said. 
At a time when we are all making such great sacrifices, it amounts to a brazen abrogation of the responsibility to protect life and such illegal behavior is abhorred by the overwhelming majority of the Jewish community. If you're scratching your head wondering how come you miss Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rushing to applaud the police, he has he has spent the past few years denigrating while simultaneously criticizing the actions of the Haredi community. Don't worry, it didn't happen here. Neither, sadly, did one of our two chief rabbis accurately or eloquently represent the views of the majority of Israel's population in calling on all sectors of society to respect the lockdown restrictions in the common fight against COVID. The remarks, coronavirus obviously in Israel, the remarks were made by by Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis the head of the UK's Orthodox Jewish community, after a large wedding was held in a school building in Stamford Hill, the center of London's Haredi community. According to local municipal officials, this is not the first time the school has been rented out for such events. Even though its legendary and much-respected principal, Rabbi Avram Pinter, died last year after contracting coronavirus, such rule-breaking behavior has been seen elsewhere across the diaspora Haredi world. The Satmar community in Brooklyn's Williamsburg neighborhood has been involved in a long-running battle with state officials over government restrictions, mask wearing, and social distancing. At the end of last year, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio promised heavy fines and blasted the organizers of a wedding for the Satmar Grand Rabbi's grandson as amazingly irresponsible, just unacceptable. While murderer Andrew Cuomo called the event a blatant disregard of the law, and disrespectful to the people of New York. But here in Israel, not only does our top political leadership remain silent in the face of constant flouting of COVID-19 regulations within the Haredi community, our Prime Minister has reduced himself to begging at the knees of the grandson of Haredi leader Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky. In two humiliating phone calls over the space of two weeks, the elected leader of the sovereign Jewish nation Sovereign Jewish nation. What's so Jewish? Dare I ask. As though we were back in the shtetl to plead with a family functionary to intercede with his grandfather and request Haredi schools remain closed during lockdown rather than simply impose the rule of law. It took an unprecedentedly violent attack on a police car in B'nai Brak last Thursday night for Netanyahu to finally condemn law-breaking in the Haredi sector. Rather than single out elements in this community for their constant undermining of the nation of the country's battle against COVID-19, the Prime Minister meekly called on all Israeli citizens without exception to follow the Health Ministry's safety guidelines. The reason for Netanyahu's deliberate failure to address continued Haredi lockdown infractions is clear. His political survival and potential escape from facing justice on charges of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust depends on his ability to form a majority coalition after the elections. For this to happen, he needs the support of the Haredi parties. Without united Torah Judaism and Shas behind him, Netanyahu is history, condemned to spend the next few years on the defendant's bench of the Jerusalem District Court, facing the very real prospect of a prison sentence. And so in every instance, Netanyahu has put his own interests ahead of those of the country, putting to one side the shameful personal example 
he set last Passover when he hosted his non-resident son around his Seder table in blatant disregard of the regulations he called on the rest of the country to follow. When faced with the choice of serving his Haredi coalition allies and doing what's best for the country, the Haredim have always come first. From ignoring Professor Ronnie Gamzu's proposal, proposals to introduce differential restrictions to clamp down on rising COVID-19 outbreaks in Haredi municipalities without shutting down the rest of the country, to refusing to increase the fines for those keeping schools open or holding mass weddings, Netanyahu always chooses not to antagonize his Haredi allies. During one of the pandemic's peaks last year, at the urging of his Haredi partners, he even allowed 12,000 yeshiva students from COVID-stricken Brooklyn to enter the country to study here, regardless of the risk involved. Such failure to tighten Israel's borders is one reason Israel has over 4,260 COVID fatalities, while other countries which, like Israel, have easily controlled points of entry, have suffered much less. Cyprus has 179 deaths as of this weekend. New Zealand has 25, and Singapore, 29. Which is why, when entering the polling booth in March, the anti-BB voters should ask themselves not only which party won't sit in government for the indicted Netanyahu, but also which party will not be beholden to Haredi coalition partners. For Israel truly to move forward in post-pandemic, post-Trump world, it's not just Netanyahu who must be removed from the levers of power. For anybody who couldn't sense the hatred in that article, hatred, then uh, you're... you're, uh, you're missing something. It is a very sad thing. It is a very sad thing. And I can tell you that that is a sentiment that many people in the country hold. That's not a radical, that is not a fringe view. There are many, millions possibly, millions, not just a million, millions of people who agree. I know people who agree with that. That would be, I know people who would, who would, who would sooner, uh, march, march, um, what's the word, you know, uh, um, to, to group, to, to, to collect everybody, collect the Haredim, put them in cattle cars, and send them off to the concentration camps. Could, did, didn't you sense that from that article? This, the problem with Israel is exclusively the Haredi people. That is the reason why this virus is where it is. That's what they want, they want, they want, that's what that article wants us to believe. There needs to be a crackdown on the Haredi sector. More ultra-Orthodox Haredi schools are expected to open their doors. This is another one example. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Another example of this, of this attitude. According to various news reports, Rabbi Chaim Kanev, the prominent Haredi leader, has given permission for traditional Talmudi Torah, as schools are called in the Haredi sector, to open starting on Sunday. This despite a specific request by Bibi last week, transmitted to the rabbi via his grandson. They love this. They love this. I, I happen to tell you, I think it's funny. I think it's funny. 
Um, I think it's funny. I'll tell you, I'll tell you why two reasons I think it's funny. One is, in a sense, it shows, you know, there are different ways to look at it. In a, sen- in a sense, it shows, um, how the, how BB isn't able to just reach the, reach, 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 uh, the Galadar. There's something, there's something humorous in that. There's something humorous in that, you know, that he doesn't just, but I think it's also, I think I have to rec- recognize that for all those on the Haredi side, that cite Rav Chaim Rav Chaim's, uh, mandates, that ultimately it's all going through his grandson. It's a very telling, it's a very telling statement. It's a very telling statement that, that everything has to go through his grandson. Don't you think? Don't you think it says something? Not just that BB can't reach him, which is obvious, which, which the, which the media are trying to show shows a disrespect for, for BB. But I think beyond that, it shows, it shows that the brand that we are worshiping might have a flaw. There might be a flaw in the brand that we are worshiping, and I'm going to be gentle as I, as I tread. I'm going to tread g- gently as I say what I say, but I think that uh, I think that you know we wouldn't we when, if 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 Reb Chaim's grandson were to come to our town, we wouldn't hold a very big event, sending all of our children out to greet to greet to greet. Uh, his grandson, Yankee, or whichever grandson, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be, uh, we wouldn't be sending them out and singing, singing all the songs that we sing. But yet, but yet, that's there's truth in that. There is truth in that. Okay, we're gonna pause there. There, not, not idea. What is happening in Israel right now with the Haredi sector is nothing short of a disaster. While making up about 12% of Israel's population, Haredim currently constitute almost 40% of the infections in the country. The fact that more schools are planning to open today in the Haredi sector is just the latest act of insurrection we have witnessed since the beginning of the corona pandemic. Insurrection. The left loves these words. The left loves these words. Insurrection. Oy. Haredim open schools when the government orders them to shut they don't wear masks they continue to congregate and hold mass gatherings in synagogues and at weddings and they violently violently clash with police whenever forces come to try to close their institutions in the face of this mass insurrection again insurrection the state is paralyzed and incapable of enforcing rule of law. It is intolerable for the fact that some kids go to school while others don't makes no sense. I agree. I think all kids should go to school. You see, I, I, I don't under, I don't understand the argument here. And maybe we should open the phone lines. 02-579-8255. Maybe somebody wants to call in. 02-579-8255. Um... <laughs> here I just saw that message there okay so I'm not worried I'm not worried the fact is that other schools should open too other schools should open too in the face of this uh, so, so so Netanyahu and the rest of his government have barely lifted a finger the Prime Minister has called Kanievsky's grandson and issued a few tweets that is it 
And this despite the images that went viral on Thursday from B'nai Brak, where police experienced what can only be described as an attack by a lynch mob when their squad car was set upon by a Haredi mob. I don't, I don't condone, condone violence. I don't condone, I, I wish that the Haredi side would do nothing. But you have to understand, they could be also protesting peacefully and be attacked. That's what could happen. So let's not fool ourselves into, into thinking, let's not fool ourselves into thinking that this problem, that this problem is, 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 is one way. I, I don't condone violence. I don't think that, that, that Haredi youth should throw stones at police. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. But, but the, the actions of the Shotrim should also, should also be checked. You know, there are lots of pictures of people that people take throughout the country of different community, different cities where nobody is following any lockdown. People are at the beaches. People are making parties. But there's one group, and it's not a chalashem, it's not a desecration of God's name necessarily. Who's to decide what a desecration of God's name is? Every single time that I transgress God's commandments, that is a desecration of God's name. Who's to decide what a public desecration of God's name is? And who's to decide whether or not a public desecration is of greater consequence than a, than a, than a private desecration? Who, who knows? Who can make those, 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 those claims and accusations? Do we really know what God considers to be a greater sin? And besides, so what if the media and the politicians have decided that these measures are necessary. You don't think that there are anti-BB pop demonstration, demonstrators also who think that these are wrong? There aren't demonstrators in England. There aren't demonstrators in America who applaud the, the, the Haredim for, for flouting the, for, 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 for not keeping the, for not keeping the guidelines. Maybe that's a Kiddush Hashem. Maybe that's a sanctification of God's name because these people, these people, See, all of these rules as completely arbitrary, and now you have a group of sect of people who are willing to show them that it's not, that they, they're not gonna keep to it, and they say, kola kavod. They say, you know, all, you know, they, they, that they, that they appreciate the fact that, that the, that these groups aren't keeping. Who's to decide? Who's to decide? Who's to decide? It's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. That's what it is. It's a lie. And we, people have bought into it. Who knows what, who knows what a Kiddush Hashem and a Chil Hashem is? Who decides? Bibi doesn't decide what a Kiddush Hashem is. Millions of children don't know Shema Yisrael. That's not a Chil Hashem. That's not a desecration of God's name. They have the ability to educate millions, millions of children, tens of millions of children throughout Israel's history as a state. And they don't educate them on the fundamentals, on the foundations of what Yiddishkeit are. And that's not a Chil Hashem. That's not a desecration of God's name. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a desecration of God's name for people to go out not wearing a mask. People to make a, a, a wedding. That's a desecration of God's name. Because you decided to make a wedding that was a little bit larger than the guidelines. 
Who cares if some people are bought, are bought into something? Who what decides? I'm 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 not saying that it's not a chalashim. I am not deciding that, but I am definitely not going to agree. I am definitely not going to agree that it is. By no stretch. What is happening in the Haredi in, in within the, the Haredim is a deep rooted problem that dates back decades. It will not be solved overnight. Decades. What 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 problem? This is COVID nineteen is a new virus. It's a novel virus. We've never seen anything like it. What what problem predates decades? Dates back decades. The fact that you have millions of children who have who have been schmatted up, that you have, that they've gone through the assimilation process of the education system, that's a problem that's dated back decades. And so you have a group that hasn't assimilated. What problem exactly is dated back decades? But there are a few steps that can be taken immediately in the absence of true political and rabbinic leadership that consistently refuses to take a stand and put the insurrectionists in their place. Insurrectionists. You know, it's a funny thing. What's an insurrection? If I'm not mistaken, it's attempting to overthrow a government and trying to and trying to create a new one. If I'm not mistaken, I'd be wrong. But they don't want that. If you ask the Haredim, they just want to be left alone. They don't care to be, they don't care to, to overthrow the government and create a new one. Yes, they would like a government that follows God's law because we do believe that that is our, God, that is our purpose. They don't care, but they're, they're not in the business of nation building and interventionism. They're not neocon conservatives. That's not the goal here. Leave me alone. I'm going to have my school open. You don't want to have yours open, so do, so be it. Gays into hate. <laughs> Leave me alone. Why do, why, why, why do I have to follow your rules? I never asked you to create this government. And I think it's a good thing. I think, you know, that there have been, the first step is to deploy police to Haredi neighborhoods and forcefully shut down any institution, school, synagogue, or mikvah that is operating against regulations. Those people who resist should be arrested. After that, every person, I'm reading the article obviously, after that, every person involved should be fined. And those fines will need to be enforced. The second step, listen to this, and look, I happen to be mixed on this attitude because I think that this is, this is actually a good idea in a way. In a way, I think it's a good idea. The second step would be to deny state funding to those institutions. I'm not, I'm not, I understand why yeshivas and schools need, need the state funding. I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I understand it. I'm not, I'm not making light of it. But if I was going to be purely ideological, I would agree that they shouldn't take money from the government. Because then they wouldn't have this opportunity. This is, this is, this is, this is it's a, very, it's a very corrupt system. It's a very corrupt system how it is. You know, you can't get land. You can't, you can't just, you can't just decide, I want to build a building. Like, in theory, in America, you could operate off the grid. In Israel, you can't. You can't. You have to lobby for a piece of, for some sort of building. It doesn't work that way. You have to get something from the government because you can't operate otherwise. It's illegal. You're not allowed to build a school. It's not, that's not in, uh, it's not in a building. I mean, you can, I guess you can buy apartments, but it's a, it's a very complicated thing. A yeshiva that opens in defiance of the government regulations cannot be allowed to receive money from the state. If they want to break the law, they will have to do so without state funding. Finally, politicians need to begin to take a stand. For now, only parties on the left have spoken out against what is happening on the Haredi streets. Politicians on the right, like Netanyahu, Gidon Sar, and Naftali Bennett, are hesitant. Since they view the Haredi parties of UTJ and Shas as potential partners in any coalition they might form following the election in March. 
It's all about politics. Really, they believe, they agree that they should come out. Really, they agree they should come out against them and they should, and they should, you know, oh, yeah, they should hang them all. That's really the attitude. They agree. Saar, Bennett, they're, they're on our side. <laughs> it's just all a game of politics. Beyond simply un- upholding the rule of law, these steps are important in order to show the Haredim that violating the law will not go unanswered and that different sectors of society cannot make rules for themselves. Everyone needs to be treated equally in Israel, equal in privileges and rights, and equal when it comes to obligations. The all- Haredim already get away with not serving in the IDF, and that needs to be solved as well. Until then, at least when it comes to coronavirus, they need to follow the laws and regulations that are issued by the government. Our lives depend on it. So, again, I'm going to go back to one statement here because this is all, you know, we've talked before about this, we're not going to talk about it now, but, you know, this term, build back better. This term that, you know, that we, you know, there are YouTube videos, we could play them from today to tomorrow about, about um, the new world order. Build back better. Build back better. These terms that these world leaders are using, they are using this this is a classic example. They are using this scam in order to effectuate the policies that they want. That is the goal here. And unfortunately, you have a lot of Haredim who have bought into that. Who, are, who would be prepared to see you know, hundreds of thousands of their own exiled, Sent off in cattle cars to concentration camps. And I firmly believe that. Don't think I'm not. I don't believe that. I believe that. I believe that they identify in this issue with the secularists. And they would condone and be on the front lines fighting all the Haredim who they view are dangerous to society. So this is a problem. This is a problem that started only nine months ago, ten months ago, eleven months ago. Really? Doesn't sound like that from this article. Doesn't sound like that from the sentiment. What is happening with the Haredim is a deep-rooted problem that dates back decades. This is not a new problem. This is just an excuse. If the Haredim kept it as most Haredim do, 80% of Haredim are keeping this, unfortunately. Much to my chagrin. 80% are. So for 20%, for 20%, we're inciting the violence and riots against the Haredim. Buses haven't been allowed to enter Bnei Brak today. They're trying to make a boycott of Bnei Brak. We'll see. They put a moratorium on entering Bnei Brak till 12 o'clock. This is a... This is a... This is a, a very disturbing, it's a very disturbing point we've reached. When dear friends are willing to turn on one another and they don't realize that they are being ignited by a common enemy. They don't realize they are being ignited by a common enemy. They think that the other side is being genuine. They are just using this as an excuse. It's a desecration of God's name. Who knows what a desecration of God's name is? Honestly. Chazal, Chazal tell us, we don't know what a mitzvah kala and mitzvah chamura are. We don't know what a light versus a stringent mitzvah is. We don't know what the, we don't, we don't know how to judge those, judge mitzvahs. We can't decide what's considered a, a mitzvah 
that's more important or less important. But of course, but of course, this coronavirus, this is it. This is the reason why. This is the reason why. It's a very sad thing. It's a very sad thing. I want to end off on a, on some sort of uh, good note today. I just uh, I didn't really find a a good story. That's the honest truth to end off with. I'd like to end off with a good a good note, but unfortunately I can't. So so be it. So be it. What can you do? I guess I've had a little fun. I'll tell you, I, I had a little fun. I'll end off with this. I responded to a YouTube video for anyone who wants to see it. I responded to a YouTube video and it's been going back and forth. I've had a little fun with that. I can say I had a little fun with that. It's been, it's been, uh, it's been light. My comments have sent about five comments or so. My comments have, cause I've been responded to by everybody. I've been attacked. It was a left wing video and I, and I, of course I showed the inconsistency in that, in their, in their, in their approach. You know, I said that, um, Bill Maher was making fun of, of, uh, Representative Madison Cawthorn. So I said, you know, I said, where's the where's the double standard? Where's the double? Where, 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 where's where's the standard that you know people who are who are disabled get some sort of leeway? He's a disability. I was attacked by everybody, you know, but a number of people have commented, you know, have have have, 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 have thumbs up. So I guess I'll just end off with that. Had a little bit of an outlet there. It was a little bit. It was a little fun. I don't think I'm going to be responding too much more to that to that thread. Just because there really isn't a point. No one, no, no one's really interested in, in talking there. But, uh, it was, it was fun while it lasted. Okay. Look, people, this is, this is an issue. We are going to be revisiting this because it is just really getting started. It is just really getting started. They are going to use this to, just like every, just like whatever we're seeing right now, if we think for a second that we, that what's going on in front of our eyes is what the ultimate goal is. We are, we are fools as a compliment to think that what's going on right now, all it is, is just, is just, uh, we have to combat the coronavirus, please. They're going to use this. They're going to incite the people and we have to recognize which side we are on. Otherwise, it's going to be a, a bloody a bloodbath, and I don't just mean that proverbially. That's been our show today. You're listening to the Morning Mix. I am Ali Shapiro. Hope you have a great day. Stay safe, stay upbeat, and please God, we will be with you tomorrow. Bye for now. <laughs>